Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that consensus has deemed important. Thus, I created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month, I'm exploring some racial reckoning films as recommended by Mark H. Harris of BlackHorrorMovies.com, and in this week's episode, I'll be talking about Jordan Peele's 2017 film, Get Out. And I'll say this was not an easy episode to prepare for, not because I had never seen this movie before, not because I had no thoughts on this movie, um, for the exact opposite reason, um, tackling this movie, despite the fact that it's only three years old, um, has the, the same kind of legacy in my mind as something like The Exorcist, a film which is now almost 40 years old, um, in, in the sense of how both of them have been in the critical conversation, the pop culture zeitgeist, that have been dubbed as cinematic legends or classics or path pavers, basically. Despite the fact that Get Out only came out in 2017, it has already achieved this status of paradigm shifting, of groundbreaking, of emblematic or iconic so much has already been written about Get Out. So much has already been said about Get Out that despite the fact that it hasn't existed like the se- or, or since the 70s like The Exorcist has or Jordan Peele doesn't have as prolific of a um, filmmaking resume as Ingmar Bergman, um, he still, with this film, has entered that category for me of what more can I say about this film that hasn't already been said? There's already been so much. Um, It didn't even take three years to get to that point, I don't think. I mean, I'd say within that same calendar year. I mean, this came out early 2017, if I remember correctly. Um, Within that year, it was already being discussed as being an important film, rightfully so. Um, but, I mean, um, uh, contributing to its legacy, contributing to it being um, immediately accepted as something important, as something groundbreaking, um, classic, um, was everything that, that you would think about one of these movies. How well it was received critically and, and financially, um, and even having you know some controversy surrounding it. That controversy was mostly bullshit, um, and I'll talk about that a little bit later, but when you have people... Um, you know, kind of writing it off uh, or, 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 or taking umbrage with the issue at the core of it, which is to say it's, it, it's exploration of um, the African-American experience in America. People, um, despite the fact that was the, what the movie is about, kind of using that as a criticism, and, and we'll get this later, but it had 
everything that you would expect from one of these movies. I mean, The Exorcist was controversial when it came out because of how sacrilegious of a film it was. You allegedly had people fainting and having to be taken out of movie theaters. Um, somebody, maybe it was Billy Graham, said the devil is literally in the celluloid. You know, this it, it was an upsetting movie, but it's 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 controversy or or what upset people about it is also what drew people to it. And it was the same with Get Out. Um, I mean, it was also a very well-made movie. It is a very well-made movie. I want to make that clear. But, you know, it, it had it had all the, the, the trademarks of a film that was going to go down as a cinematic classic. And we were kind of already talking about it like that within a year of its release. And this is all a, a long-winded way of, of me just... Um, saying once again, how how can I add anything new to the conversation? What am I going to say about this movie that hasn't already been said? I mean, you you look at 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 really significant people and genres. Uh, well, not genres, but creations. I mean, Alfred Hitchcock is studied in film schools. Um, the Wire is taught in schools. There are courses based around The Wire when it comes to um, sociology and and um, urban development and that sort of thing. Um, Get Out is there too. Um, Tanana Rivdu, who is a professor at UCLA, teaches a class called The Sunken Place, Racism, Survival, and Black Horror Aesthetic. So this is... is in that same category is of the caliber of those things which are changing a conversation or bringing new ideas to a conversation that uh, that gatekeepers have been keeping from people for the most part. And I mean, um, Tanana Rivdu, maybe you recognize the name, she was featured in the documentary Horror Noir, which I've talked about mo- numerous times on this podcast, in conversation with Jordan Peele. Horror Noir itself is a documentary that is inspired by or based on a book called Horror Noir, Blacks in American Horror Films from the 1890s to the Present by Robin R. Means Coleman, who also teaches at Texas A&M. Which is to say, this is, Get Out is a film which is, (laughs) is being taught already, is, is being held up as an example of an important piece of art that has contributed to a changing conversation and changing perspectives in American cinema. So once again, how do I add to that conversation? Well, this is my podcast. So I, I, the only thing I can add is, is, is my perspective. And and that really, for me, it comes down to two two things. Um, why I found this film so good and so effective as a horror film, and also my response to the criticisms or the people that would say that this film is cheap or or tarnished or gimmicky because it seems to focus on an African-American protagonist and his experience in America, which is to say those people say, well, if this was a white character, we wouldn't even be talking about this movie. We wouldn't even have a film. I have thoughts on that. I have opinions. And so these are the only real things that I can offer, which is my perspective, my individual subjective perspective and experience. And 
if you take umbrage with that, then I honestly don't know why you've been listening to this podcast because it's literally only me on here uh, with, of course, the exception of the introductory episodes. But um, let's start why uh, about why or start with why I think Get Out is such a good horror film, why it's such an effective film, why I am in awe of Jordan Peele as a director. This is such an assured direction for a guy that was, you know, not inexperienced at all um, as a writer, as a performer, as a filmmaker, as a producer. But this being his debut film, that's not fair because it's so assured in its tone. The performances are uniformly excellent. And it's such a complete vision from beginning to end. It's really not fair. But let's talk about the beginning because... Before I, I, I guess we even get into that, here's a fun story. When I first saw this in the movie theaters, and I will say I guess I was a little bit distracted because of things going on in my personal life at the time, but I did not connect, <laughs> despite the fact that the film couldn't be any clearer about it, that the character being abducted in the beginning of the film um, is Lakeith Stanfeld's character who comes back later on <laughs> when we see him at the party. So, um... Andre Logan King, um, I, I did not realize that was him being abducted at the beginning. I didn't realize that this was a, that it was going to be a setup and a callback. I just kind of assumed that it was totally setting the stage for what we were going to encounter, which that's on me being a dum-dum because of that. But that opening sequence in which Andre is kidnapped um, quite brutally by uh, Jeremy Armitage, played by Caleb Landry Jones, um, I love that sequence because it's brief, but it, it, it what it does, it, it, it subverts a lot of um, <clears throat> what we love about horror to begin with, or, or, or those iconic horror films like A Nightmare on Elm Street or Halloween, specifically these films that take place in the suburbs, because when those films came out, you know, in the late, in the mid to late 70s and the early 80s, what part of what made those films terrifying was this this concept or this premise of horror coming to the suburbs this idea of the suburbs being this this uh this this paradise this uh this beacon of safety this um removal from the real world from the the you know the goings on in the 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 hustle and bustle of the urban environment that that the suburbs were a place to escape to to remove oneself from all those things and so what made Michael Myers so terrifying, what made Freddy Krueger so terrifying, was that these monsters were invading our concept of safety. Our, our fortresses of solitude were being invaded and we were being killed. We were being stalked and we were being terrified. For Michael Myers, it's quite literally in the sense of, you know, terror comes to Haddonfield, that this, this sleepy, quiet little suburb, which, you know, had gone decades without seeing this tragedy the tragedy revisits it. Your teens are killed. Your your innocents are being victimized. Um, your white picket fences are no substantial barrier to terror. And it was this idea of the shit that was going on, you know, outside. These, these are other people's problems. Vietnam, government, you know, the, the gas crisis, all these sort of things which seem so far away. That specter, that terror, that cloud was coming over the suburbs. You couldn't escape these things. 
the paranoia and the terror were creeping into you. Michael Myers was kind of the embodiment of that. You are not safe no matter where you go. Freddy Krueger even went further by invading your dreams. The safety of sleep. It doesn't matter how shitty my day was. It doesn't matter the pain that I went through. I can at least escape into sleep and I can escape into dreams where nothing can really hurt me there. And here was this creature, this man, this terror that could hurt you there, that could kill you there. These were subversive, scary ideas. But those films existed based on the premise of horror and terror coming to the suburbs. By having this opening sequence taking place at night, and this African-American guy kind of basically being lost in the suburbs and then being stalked, followed by this car, and then being physically assaulted, what it implies is that it is the suburbs themselves which are terrifying. That this guy has went from Brooklyn, his home, into the suburb. He has went from safety into danger. And it's, it's fascinating to me how that paradigm shifts or flips in Get Out. It's a, it's a short scene, but it, it carries with it so much weight because of what we've seen before and now what he is doing with it. So that, that's absolutely terrifying to me um, and, and fascinating to me as well. Um, also, I liked, uh, I liked how um, this was something I noticed uh, watching this movie again. I, I had seen it a couple times before, but when, um, when Chris and Rose first show up to the Armitage estate, whatever you want to call it, their, their house, their home, um, and they meet Missy and Dean, Catherine Keener and Bradley Whitford, it's fascinating to me how Jordan Peele chooses to shoot that scene, how to shoot their arrival. Because rather than showing up, you know, having the car kind of pull up in, 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 in a wide shot and then getting out of the car, and then we cut to a close-up of the coverage of them kind of getting out and walking up the stairs and saying hello to the parents and kind of in, in a, a, um, a medium shot or a close-up shot or that kind of thing, instead of going from this wide establishing shot to a closer, physically and more intimately closer um, exchange of greetings, it stays wide. The car pulls up, they get out of the car, they, they load their luggage up, and they meet the parents, and it stays wide, so wide, that we see the entirety of the house. And if I remember correctly, the camera even kind of um, pulls back a little bit, and the score builds a little bit underneath it. And, and what it reminded me of, and maybe this is because I, I've been recently watching The Haunting of Bly Manor on Netflix, it's Halloween after all, it reminded me of a haunted house movie. It reminded me of, you know, people pulling up to that old haunted manor, that old abandoned estate where, you know, they, they have to spend the night, <laughs> survive the night more specifically. It reminded me of that by framing the house as this looming figure and by not introducing us to the parents right away when they pull up like that, it, it has that sense of looming dread. It has a sense of this is a, a haunted, ominous structure. That when our characters go inside, there is going to be something terrible waiting for them. And, and I thought it, it would have been 
you know, you would have shot this the, that that arrival the same way if you were filming instead a, a, a story that took place in the 1800s and it was and it was a horse and carriage pulling up. And to show this this large just looming physical structure that there's a, a, a danger to the way that Peel doesn't immediately cut to the this this close intimate interaction. He just stays in this house. I really, really love that. And you even kind of have the this subtle um you know reinforcement of that idea when Bradley Whitford's character is taking him on a tour and showing him all these houses or houses, all these rooms in his house. Let me let me give you the tour. And I, I was reminded of that, you know, that, that sort of happens too, uh, when, you know, in, in those haunted house movies. Here's the parlor. Here's this. Here's the rooms you don't go into. Um, and it was also interesting to me how um, the way that Peel shoots the house, obviously there's a lot more physical space, so there's a lot more angles um, and shots that he can use to show you Here's this room, here's this picture, here's this thing. Here is all the stuff we have. Here is all the privilege that we have. He, you know, he he's got so many more tricks at his disposal to do that. Whereas when it comes to Chris's apartment, it's a nice apartment. It's a very nice apartment. But it's also a New York apartment, which means there's a lot less space. There's a lot less things to show off. And it's interesting that I wonder if he did this intentionally, but if you pay attention to the scenes uh, that take place in Chris's apartment, whether it's that early introducing introductory scene in which we see, you know, Chris and Rose there, or even um, later on um, when um, uh, Lil Ray is, a, or, or <laughs> Lil Ray Howery is the actor, uh, when Rod is taking care of the dog, for the most part, the stuff that takes place in the apartment is shot from one of two angles. And it's both like looking down because it's it's a longer apartment. That, you know, it's not very wide, so it's a, either the camera kind of looking down one way, or looking back the other way. Um, and there's you know a little bit of 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 a coverage kind of in between, especially when um, when Rod is you know on the couch or he's talking on the phone or he's taking care of the dog. But for the most part, it's it's the camera looking in one direction or looking in another direction and just kind of variations of that in between. And it's sort of, to, to me, subtly uh, um, implied the uh, a difference of status, I suppose. Um, and, and this is one that I fully admit maybe I'm reading too deep into, but I that that was interesting to me. I also love how the story and the mystery unfolds piece by piece. That when you're watching this film for the very first time, Peel is doing a great job of laying groundwork and having these strange shots or interactions or bits of dialogue in which one brick at a time he builds this wall that is telling you there is something really fucked up going on here and lead you to believe something about what it could potentially be, who the potential villains or nefarious characters are, and who the potential victims are. Certainly we know Chris is going to be. He's the main character. He's the protagonist of the story. Um... 
but also um, Walter and Georgina. That's what we believe, at least. We believe that there is going to be some type of reveal of them being victims, of them being manipulated, maybe bewitched. Um, but there is something not right with these two. And we're going to get to the bottom of it. And then when the ultimate reveal comes, it's not really what we expected at all. I mean, mostly, or, or partially perhaps, but in, in its entirety, in the reveal of who Walter and Georgina actually are, why they act the way they do, and who the perpetrators are, if you tell me that you had predicted that when you first saw it in its entirety, I would call bullshit right away. Absolutely. 100%. But what's great is how Peel keeps us engaged. Peel keeps us on the edge of our seat and keeps us guessing. And sets, us, sets our expectations up for one thing and then pulls the rug out from under us. Even when we meet Stephen Root's character, Jim Hudson, the one who ultimately wins the chance to, to, uh, to, you know, or I guess you could just say wins Chris, if you will. Their initial interaction and connection, especially over photography, seems like it's kind of a, 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 a solace in this awkward storm of meeting all these really strange, definitely racist old white people. And then, just a few scenes after that, there is the auction, this horrifying equivalency of a slave auction in which, nope, he's part of it as well. But then even his part to play as a, what are they doing and, 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 and how, how is he a beneficiary of this auction is also not revealed until significantly later in the film. And it's, it's wonderful to keep you guessing. And even just, I remember I was terrified when I first saw this. And you saw um, Walter literally running towards Chris in the middle of the night. And it doesn't make any sense when you first see it. And nothing that Georgina does or, or Georgina does makes any sense when you first see it. And then when you understand, like, holy shit. It's great. And it also goes into this next part, which is just the, the, the idea of how rewatchable this movie is, how much value it has on rewatching, or in rewatching, I suppose you should say. But you can watch it once, you can think it's great, and then you watch it again, and since you know everything that is going to happen, you can see all the hints that Peel puts in there. Um, specifically, something like, when Chris is being given the tour and Dean shows him the kitchen and he prefaces it by saying, my mom always loved her kitchen and now there's always a piece of her here. And right as he says, there's a piece of her here, the camera reveals Georgina. <laughs> what piece of her is here? Her brain inside Georgina. My mom is still there. Or even even the the subtle language that he uses, you know, when he's trying to describe to Chris, um, you know, what we think is him, him trying to be a, a a a courteous and woke guy, explaining like, oh, you know, this this is why a wealthy white family has has black servants. 
and he says, you know, they, they, they helped take care of our parents, and after they died, uh, I couldn't bear to let them go. But if you focus, if you really, like, focus on the grammar of that sentence, after my parents died, I couldn't bear to let them go. The them refers to the subject of the sentence, which is the parents. So even that, he's being pretty upfront, which who he's talking about, but he's hiding it. It's a hint that we don't pick up on when we see it for the first time, but it's certainly something we understand the second time we watch it. Or even stuff like, um, you know, uh, the, the helmet that we see in, in, a, in, in Caleb Landry's car. Referring, you know, kind of tying this into um, a, a backstory that, that Jordan Peele had written about the, the family kind of being tied into a, a history of the Knights Templar. And even, you know, in, in, even in that awkward fucking party scene, when the old guy is talking to Chris about, you know, knowing Tiger Woods and how Tiger Woods is the best, and even though they established that Chris doesn't play golf, he says, let me see your form. It's not because this guy thinks that um, Chris should try golf. It's because he wants to see if his brain is put in Chris's body, could he continue to play golf in that young physical form? Or when we meet Dre for the first time, and Chris watches him walk over to the people and kind of spin around, he's not showing off his wardrobe. He's showing off his new form, this old white guy whose brain is now in Andre's body. He's showing off his physical form, his new physical form. There's so much stuff like this littered throughout the film, and I love it. And it just adds an extra level of appreciation when I watch this movie again. And being a film about the black experience in America, even the, the subtle visual things that Peel does to further accentuate the struggle and the oppression that historically black Americans have had in this country. None of this is new to you if you really love this film and have read about it, even just reading the IMDb trivia, but when Chris is tied up in the, the, the chair uh, near the end and he's picking at it, you know, it's, it's, he is picking cotton out of the chair, the cotton picker. The, uh, the, the buck head, which is standing above the TV, which he, uh, he later uses to impale Dean. Big Buck. I, I think it is was a term that white people would use to refer to slaves that would not, uh, not be cooperative with, um, with white uh, landowners or, or, or um, people that deemed themselves to be above these uh, non-whites. And uh, when Allison Williams, when Rose is, is uh, sitting Googling NCAA or top NCAA prospects, she's got the milk in a glass and she's got the fruit roll uh, fruit roll-ups, the, uh, the fruit loops in a bowl. She has literally separated colors from something that's white. There are so many things in this which speak to or hint at the African-American experience in America because Jordan Peele is making a film about the African-American experience in America and specifically how it has been, but more importantly, still is a horror. And that leads me into my 
second point, which is um, responding to the criticism of the comments that basically say, well, if this were a white protagonist, we wouldn't even be talking about this movie, or this movie wouldn't even exist. First off, no shit. That is the point. That's what Jordan Peele is saying. That's the film that Jordan Peele is making. And I hate this comment for many reasons, not the least of which is because it's some low-grade racist bullshit, but also because it's, it's, it's so absurd to me, even, even from a, a filmic perspective. I mean, the horror genre is one that has always been historically about giving voice to the marginalized or commenting on systems that have oppressed or corrupted a people group. So to say that if we were just, if this film had a white protagonist, we wouldn't even be talking about this movie. It's an invalid criticism. It doesn't make any sense because, of course, this is supposed to be about that experience. You wouldn't say, you know, oh, well, we wouldn't even be talking about Dawn of the Dead if it hadn't been set in a mall. We wouldn't even be talking about the film Teeth if it had a male protagonist. We wouldn't even be talking about Candyman if, if the, uh, the, the specter haunting our character was a white man. Which, in the source text, it was. I admit that, but... Um, the, oh, <laughs> of course, of course we wouldn't be talking about it. Because this is the reason that we're talking about it. Because this was the point behind all this shit. Because Jordan Peele is using the horror genre to speak to a larger societal ill. Because Jordan Peele is using a black protagonist to explain to people, to show to people how this is what my experience has been like, this is what the experience of millions of people across this country is like. We wouldn't even be talking about this movie if it had a white protagonist. No shit, because we need to be talking about the black protagonist, because we need to have the perspective of the black protagonist. Because we need to know more, because we need more knowledge and awareness of this experience. An experience which has been horrifying for hundreds of years and for millions, probably billions of people across history. This wouldn't even be a film, or we wouldn't even be talking about it if it had a white protagonist. Yeah. Because also, let's stop, or let's put a hold on, or let's reduce the number of white protagonists which are taking place, or, or having these experiences. Let's have more representation, let's have more stories from and about black men, and black women, and women, and, non, and LGBTQ people. It, horror has always been a genre which has commented on society's ills. Dawn of the Dead takes place in a mall, 
because George Romero was making a comment on how consumer culture makes people zombies. The film Teeth has a woman with a vagina that has teeth and literally bites people's dicks off because it is making a comment on the terrifying experience of being a young woman that is often at the mercy of men that would seek to take advantage of her. It baffles me that that, that people could say something like that and be genuine about it and not realize how foolish they are coming across. Horror has always been a story of the other. Horror has always been about the voice of the marginalized speaking to you. Has always been how the marginalized has been telling you, this is what my experience is like. And I am valid just like you are. I mean, look at, uh, uh, was it Clive Barker's Nightbreed? Another perfect example. It, 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 it's baffling to me. It's absurd to me that people could say this movie wouldn't even be made or we wouldn't be talking about it if it was a white protagonist because it's just a standard horror film. Well, no, it's not. It's, it, there's, not there's nothing standard about it. It's a very well-made film. It's very well-directed in so many regards. And also, it's a well-directed story about an experience in this country that we have not often been seeing and that we need to see more of. And I hope we do see more of it. Jordan Peele has been doing a, a fantastic job of ushering in underrepresented voices in the horror community, in the filmic community in general. Um, help bring Lovecraft Country, which just wrapped up, help bring that to air. Um, helped bring Nia DaCosta's Candyman to, well, I can't really say it to big screens because the, the pandemic has um, put a little bit of a hold <laughs> on that, if you will. But what's important is that these stories are being told and that and also the specific way that they are being told as well i loved get out um i'm glad that get out exists i'm glad that people many people saw it and i'm glad that people are going to be talking about it for a long long time even learning about it in schools um, if you want to rewatch Get Out, assuming you don't already have uh, the Blu-ray or DVD of it, it's available to rent and buy pretty much in every venue you could possibly imagine. Apple TV, Amazon, Google Play, YouTube, Fandango Now, Vudu, the Microsoft Store, Redbox, and AMC On Demand as well. That does it for my episode on Get Out. I'm always curious, of course, to hear what you have to say, agree or disagree. Email me at uh, youdomoviesbadly at gmail.com. 
You can tweet at me at Nolan Fixes Teeth. Chime in in the comments field of the episode by going to battleshipretention.com, going to the podcast drop down menu, and selecting I Do Movies Badly, where you can also catch up on back episodes of I Do Movies Badly there, or on iTunes, um, Google Play, or the Google Store, whatever the hell you Google thing has to where you can get podcasts, um, Amazon Music, and also Spotify. Um, or go directly to the source, idomoviesbadly.podbean.com. Um, so that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Um, next week, I will, of course, be wrapping up Racial Reckoning films with Ma. So tune in then when hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 